We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared these words more than once, more than once through his public life, through uh, sermons and speeches. Uh, this year marks the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's uh, assassination at that Memphis hotel. His words still ring true today. We must learn to live together as brothers. And when Dr. King said those words, his aim was at the shared humanity, at our shared citizenship of white and black people in America. He declared we may have all come on different ships, but we are all on the same boat now. He fought for a shared unity among people of all races. His dream was that one day his four little children would live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. His dream was that a shared humanity and love would rise above hate. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Now, although Dr. King's desire was right and true for humanity, it is even more poignant for the church. We, as a body of believers, must live together as brothers and sisters. We share far more than simply a shared humanity. We, have, we share the same spirit and the same Lord. We are not citizens only of an earthly kingdom but that will one day perish, but an eternal kingdom that will last forever. We are part of one body, with one faith, with one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through, and in all. God has lavished His grace upon us, and even as our church covenant states, there is now on us a special obligation to lead a new and holy life, to live carefully in the world. We must work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. Dr. King was right. We must learn to live at, together as brothers. Unity and brotherhood is not easy. It's a, it's a learned skill, a much-needed skill for believers today. America is a powder keg. It's a powder keg of emotional turmoil and frustration, from political disagreements to racial strife. One inflammatory comment or a tragic shooting ignites a firestorm of frustration and anger and hurt and hopelessness throughout our shores. Our world is divided. But the church should never be. We must lead the way in unity amongst ourselves here in this body, in unity amongst other believers across the nation. We must work and pray for unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. We must Learn how to live together as brothers and sisters. So as we think through unity, I'm going to ask three questions this morning to help us think through how to live together more faithfully as a family of Christ. First, why should we even care? Why care about unity? Unity is hard work. So before we begin the necessary task of unity, we must first see its value. I remember a story a few years ago of a father who always had a hard time losing weight. And he never had the proper motivation until one day his little girl needed his kidney. And the doctor looked at him in the face and said, sorry, sir, we can't use your kidney because of your weight. The father lost all the weight he needed to within six months. 
He had the proper motivation. Right? He was determined to do it rightly. So before we begin the hard work of the what, what we must do, we must first identify the why. Why should we care about unity? Paul encourages unity here at the church in Corinth. Look back in your text this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Really the only verse we're going to be camping at this morning. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul's first appeal for unity is based on the shared brotherhood, the shared family relationship. I appeal to you, brothers. When we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, we were transformed from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. We are no longer primarily citizens of this world. Primarily, we are still citizens here now, but primarily our citizenship rests in heaven. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. Now, in the first century, when, when Paul said brothers, that was a whole different meaning than we have today. It means the same thing, but family meant so much more then. Your family de- depended your highest, demanded your highest loyalty. So when Paul appeals to this, this brothers, he's appealing to their highest allegiance to their family. And notice their family is primarily not defined by their blood, but by their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his second appeal, which I believe is the most important reason why we should be united. It is that we should be united by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We strive for unity. We do all the things necessary to be unified, to deal with all the differences that we have, both uh, ethnically and um, socioeconomically and, and geographically. We work through all those things because of our shared Lord, the Lord, shared lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting here that Paul doesn't say, the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, by our Lord Jesus Christ. We have all come to Christ. We have all come to recognize our need of him. The cross is the great equalizer. It casts judgment on all of humanity. The cross says everyone deserves death. But it also states that everyone is loved and has an opportunity to come to God through Christ. Jesus died for all who will repent of their sins and turn to him. We are all sinners and all need a Savior. And yet Jesus has made a way. He has rescued us from ourselves. He willingly, hear me, he willingly laid down his life to save us. He willingly was beaten, beaten and mocked and cursed for us. He willingly took God's wrath for us on the cross. He did so because of his love. Romans 5.8, God shows us his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, we do not deserve God's love. As much as our world says that we deserve God's love, we don't. We are sinners. And yet God freely and generously gives it. So in the cross, we see love. And in the resurrection, we see a glorious hope. So Paul appeals to the Corinthians right at the outset of his letter, a church amidst with strife and turmoil with the gospel. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would consider the price God has paid for you 
and the love that he has shown you in the gospel. Everyone here knows sin. We know the the, the feelings that come from sin, the the feelings of, of regret and shame and guilt, pain. Those feelings are God's kindness to you. To show you that something is wrong with you so that you would turn to him. Our sin separates us from God. Without a Savior, the Bible says that we will perish. Friend, God has made a way for you to become part of his family. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When we call upon the name of the Lord, it's not merely saying that we we trust in Jesus in a a one-time decision. No, it's giving Jesus reign and control of our, our lives. When we call out to the Lord, He saves us and gives us His Spirit and empowers us to live for Him. Friend, we may all come here on different ships. We are all on the same sinking boat. Only those who cling to Christ will be saved from the ocean of despair. Beloved, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to pursue unity. Pursue unity because it pleases our Savior. There is no greater place to see the the desire that our Lord has for unity. And right before he faced the cross and his crucifixion in John 17, he he starts praying to the Father. And the last prayer, long extended prayer we have before before he died was praying for Unity. One of the greatest desires of our Lord Jesus was the church would be unified. But he also, in that prayer, not only asks that we would be unified, he gives us the purpose of why we would be unified. So that the world may know that the Father has sent him, and the Father loves the world in sending forth the Son. True unity only can come through the truth displayed in Jesus Christ. So what I'm talking about today, about unity, I'm not saying, hey, let's just all get along. That's part of it. But the the gospel unity is far greater than that. Church, do we need any higher motivation for unity than this? Our great and glorious, compassionate Lord Jesus desires our unity. And our unity will help bring people to Jesus. And when people come to Jesus, guess what? His glory is manifested even more across this earth. Beloved, let's learn to live together as brothers and sisters for the sake of the glory of our loving and compassionate Savior. Secondly, where do divisions begin? Where do divisions begin? So we have the why. Why do we want to pursue unity? But where do these divisions come from? We know we should fight for unity. We know that we should be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's often not the case. Why? Why is there so much strife in our fellowship? Not our fellowship here, but just in general among people. Well, the answer is very easy. It's in us. We have hearts and have desires that often are against God. James 4.1 What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Fights and quarrels, arguments and divisions, they begin in our own hearts. We often want to project that upon other people, but we have to first look at upon our own hearts. We desire something and we do not get it, so we, we fight against others who are made in the image of God. Unity is hard today because it is not natural 
to man. The natural man, or the one who has not been made alive to the Spirit of Christ, has his highest allegiance and loyalty to himself. The natural person cares more about himself than anything else. He does what he wants when he wants. His primary interests are his own. Listen to what Tony Ranke, author, says it when he speaks of this verse. What causes our fights and quarrels? We want. We are wanters. We are driven by desires. We and wanters, driven by unchecked desires, find themselves in a lot of fights. Some bloody fights, but mostly unseen fights. Non-physical fights, the kind of internal loathing towards others. A pot of boiling acid that simmers under the surface and only rarely bubbles up and bursts out in verbal disdain. Under the surface is where we nurse the insidious porridge of worldly yearnings for what others possess. A certain house or car or salary or physique or spouse or background or spiritual gift or gift or ability. If only, we think, we lust and we covet, we become fighters. We fight because we are wanters and we want the wrong things. We want the wrong things. Our wanting of things and reputation and prestige shift us from wanting the highest good, God. Our highest good should be God himself. God and his pleasure with us should be our highest and strongest motivation. If we look around the, the heated and often uncivil discourse of our day, we see a lot of Christians fighting for a lesser good than God himself. We too often are not careful with our tongues and allow our internal passions to control us. Divisions and strife begin in us all. All of us. You know, it may start in a small way when a friend doesn't recognize maybe that you're hurting. You have something going on in your life and you have a friend in your life that they should know what's happening with you. And because they, they don't know what, what ends up happening, maybe this a seed of bitterness is sown. And you may not outwardly say anything to them, but you know what you do? You just distance yourself a little bit. You allow that, that bitterness to become coldness in your relationship. Your desire to be loved starts to control and create malice in your heart towards others. It is so subtle. It may, may start in other ways. It may start when you open up your phones and go on your tablets and see a social media post on, on race or a comment defending the president's comments. Friends, we all have passions and desires that wage war within us. They show themselves in different ways, but to deny them is foolish. We must learn to navigate our hearts. We have to search and study our desires to pull them in line with Christ. Remember Paul's words. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there would be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and the same Judgment. Now listen, it's not just that we don't want to be have divisions, to be absent of divisions. No, we want to be united in the same mind. We want to replace divisions with unity, the unity that comes through Christ. God demands a far greater unity than just the absence of conflict. He wants that conflict to be replaced with love. So lastly, what is the way forward? Right? What is the way forward? How do we strive for unity and a bond of peace? 
Now, we know we should desire unity. We may know where it comes from within us, but it has extremely high implications. Unity helps manifest the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and brings salvation to sinners. There is nothing more important in our world than God's glory and the redemption of sinners. Now, the list I'm about to offer you is not exhaustive, but hopefully that's a good place to start. Number one, humble yourself. Humble yourself. We are called to have the same mind as Christ. Even in James 4, it's a great passage to study if you have some time this afternoon. He encourages humility. He goes on in verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you double-minded. Your hearts, you double-minded. See, we begin our quest for unity by humbling ourselves before God. The first thing we have to do is recognize our own sin. We confess and repent. Humility and repentance is the beginning and the end, at the beginning to the end of strife and dissension. In humbling ourselves, we are reminding ourselves of, that we need to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Paul exhorts the, the church at Philippi to, to think about their salvation. He says, if you have any comfort from knowing Christ, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, do nothing out of vain envy or, or selfish ambition or vain conceit. But have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being born in human life, you can obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we humble ourselves, we remind that Jesus Christ first humbled himself. The key to unity is humility. It is beholding the humility of the Lord Jesus. And wanting to follow his example. Second, we pray. Only God can change human hearts. Only God can bring peace from division. One of the reasons, now hear me. Now, I don't think this is, I, don't, I do not think that our church is, is disunited. Okay? That's not why I'm preaching this sermon. What I am preaching this sermon for is that we would be a leading church for unity. Not only amongst ourselves, but across our relationships outside this, these walls. But we also have to be very aware that division and strife can pop up at any time. Unity is a very fragile thing. One of the reasons why I think churches, not this church, but churches in general are so filled with strife is because we are a prayerless people. If you have bitterness and anger towards anyone, pray for them. And when you truly pray for them, watch that bitterness and anger start to melt away. I have seen people who have been extremely sinned against have their hearts turned back to God and others through prayer. And yet I've seen others hold their bitterness and hold on to their anger because they have not gone to the Lord in, in prayer. Beloved, if you want to be united here as a local body and as a larger Christian community throughout our country, we must pray. We must seek God's help, God's power, God's spirit to bring about peace where there is division, to bring healing where there is pain, to bring joy where there is sorrow. Three, believe the best about others. Believe the best about others. I feel like I've said this three times in the last uh, month from the pulpit. 
But it's so easy to believe the worst about others. You know, we're slighted in some way, and we assume it's because the other person hates us. <laughs> you know, uh, that we could be the person that had other things on the mind that day. Um, so we need to train our minds to believe the best about others. I think it's a powerful defense against disunity. The natural mind looks for faults, while I believe the spiritual mind looks for blessings and evidences of God's grace. It's natural to criticize. It is natural to condemn others. But we should make our practice to see where God is moving in someone's life rather than where he is absent. For example, we may be upset that we have less time with a friend or a mentor. But we can thank God for how that friend or mentor is, is pouring their, themselves into others. We can maybe bemoan someone's lack of, of giving to the church. But we can celebrate how that person serves our children. We can criticize the, the tone of someone's fight for justice. But we can also affirm their desire for justice. That is a good and godly thing. There are times when we should speak. And there are times to be critical. But only after much prayer and searching of our own hearts. I think this is true for our closest relationships. If you have someone right now that you know that you have a problem with internally, that, that, that seed of bitterness is, is dwelling up in your heart, the first thing you must do is, is take the plank out of your own eye. You must bow before the Lord and search your own heart and, and ask Him to reveal your sin. Confess it and then approach that person. Friend, we need to not assume the worst of others' actions, but make a practice of seeing each other's good. This is one of the reasons why I love Wednesday night prayer time when we pray at the end of our service and we really just pray unto the Lord and thank God for what he's doing in the lives of other believers. Really what that's, what that's doing, it's allowing us to see how God is moving in other people's lives and hopefully training our minds to believe the best about others. Next, I would encourage you to build relationships in person. Build relationships in person. Now, social media and the online world has its benefits but we should not over-depend upon it. God made us relational beings. Now hear me. We all have ignorance. We all have prejudice. It is natural. The natural man fears what they do not understand. A one face-to-face -face conversation with someone you do not know can, can begin to help you overcome your ignorance. The most valuable experience in my own life have been when I have had the privilege to enter into someone else's world. It is only in entering into their world that I begin to understand what their experience has been. The knowledge gained in relationship is essential to overcome our ignorance and our prejudice. I, wouldn't, I would be a very different person if I never lived cross-culturally in Washington, D.C. Living there for five years, having my own prejudice, and my own ignorance, ignorance exposed day after day. God exposed those prejudices every day. I would confess it and move beyond it. I'd be a very different person if I never worked at a group home with, with teenage mothers, not knowing their experiences and, and what really involves the life of foster care and not having a stable home life. It was learning who they were and, and their life stories that created empathy and compassion in my heart towards others. Friends, we do not want to be ignorant of the lives of others. We don't want to assume that we know anything about anybody else's life. Get to know people who are not 
like you. So if you are young, get to know someone older. If you're white, get to know someone who is black or Hispanic. Learn what it, what it feels like to, to live in America as a minority. And if you're black, get to learn the struggle of a white person who is navigating their own prejudice and privilege. God exposes our ignorance and our prejudice so, so, so that we can be changed. So we can be changed and more glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And help redeem sinners who see God transforming our lives. Remember what Jesus said? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The calling of Christians is far higher than the calling of this world. We have been redeemed to live redeemed. We are the light of the world. So let our light shine so that we may see our love for one another and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. The next point, read to understand. Read to understand. You know, we can confront our own ignorance by reading books on the experience of others. So if you're a man, I think it's valuable to read maybe an ex a book written by a woman about their experience in life. There is so much we can learn by in entering into somebody else's reality through, through reading. You know, it's, it's, if you wanted to learn about Germany in the 1940s, you read Mein Kampf. If you want to learn about South Africa during apartheid, you read Nelson Mandela's biography. Read to understand. Don't read to refute or read to argue, but read to understand. Listen, race is not going away. It has been one of the most widely debated and controversial issues in our society. We must, as Dr. King said, learn to live together as brothers and sisters. And one of the ways that we do that is we understand the, the history of our brothers and sisters. The goal is to understand the lives of others, to develop empathy and compassion for their struggles. And we don't have to agree with everything that you read or even like everything that you read. But we must strive to understand why the world is watching Christians. The world is watching Christians now more than ever before because it's on a global scale. Every time you hit tweet or post, your theology is now on display for everyone to see. So let us show how a Christian should conduct themselves. That everything that they say is seasoned with grace and full of love. Let us show the world that we may be from different backgrounds, but we have a common goal, and that's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we want to be patient. It's hard to be patient in general. I think it's especially hard to be patient in matters of justice. Patient means to, to be able to accept and tolerate delays or problems or, or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. There will be people who want their leaders to move faster than they do and others who want them to slow down. Progress is slow. Waiting is hard. There are no easy answers or quick fixes to disunity. It takes time for people to work through their own ignorance. I told you before, if it wasn't for my experience in D.C. and my experience at a, as a, at, at a foster home, um, running a group home, I would not understand as much as I do. And yet I have much, much to learn. It takes time for the Lord to work things out in your own heart. And it also takes time for those who have, who have experienced the harshness of racism to get through it. 
We need to be patient as they process what it means to, to forgive. And this is really our, our, our goal last week, is we read the Word of God, we practice the spiritual disciplines, so that we can all grow in godliness. And one of the ways we grow in godliness is better loving each other, is being patient and, 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 and kind to, to people as they struggle. We want to love each other enough to be patient as they struggle through their various issues. I'll never forget, I was in a, a meeting with a group of ministers in um, a, a retreat in Pennsylvania. And uh, this man named Terry looked at my friend, George. Terry's white, George is black. And, and he looked at him and he says, I, I, would, I, had, I had come to grips with the fact that I, I wanted my daughter to marry a white non-Christian more than a black Christian. And he was just weeping, saying, that is sin. That is sin and ungodly. Now, if George was an unrighteous man, he could have laid the hammer down on him. How could you ever think that? But George was a godly brother, and he just said, it's okay, man. Confess that sin. Let God work in your life. That's the kind of relationships the church is supposed to have. You know, we all want to be sanctified. We all want to become more like the Lord Jesus. And let's just be honest, it's a slow process. Of course, there's times and seasons we may experience quick growth, but... Growth in life is usually gradual. Let's be patient in the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the other's life and the life of the church. Lastly, let us trust God. You know, we can be patient because we know that God is at work. God is not surprised in anything that is happening in our lives. God uses the injustice to sanctify His people. God uses suffering to build character, endurance, and hope in the hearts of people. God uses pain to create a holy longing for the day that there will be no more tears or sorrow. God took the worst injustice that ever happened, the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, to bring eternal salvation for sinners. God will work all things for the good of those who love Him and will call according to His purpose. God is trustworthy. You know, unity is a glorious and beautiful thing. It may be as fragile as a snowflake, but... What immense beauty happens when, when a fragile snowflake is united with others. It creates this glorious picture of beauty. Friends, we must learn to live as brothers. In an old Peanuts cartoon, Lucy commands Linus to change the channel. And Linus kind of responds and says, What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy responds, These five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together as a single unit, right, they form a terrible weapon to behold. Beloved, a holy, unified church is an awesome, powerful weapon in the hand of God. So let us curl ourselves together into a single unit for the glory of our great and awesome Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be unified for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.